0: Uh, Now, if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod and King, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word and I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced excitingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed to their own country by another way Now when the Lord had now when they had departed behold an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said rise take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or under according to the time that had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to to be comforted because they are no more.
1: Thank you, Yarm family. Thanks be to God for his word. Thanks for ministering to us so wonderfully this morning. He was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. Famous lines from the beginning of Dickens' Christmas Carol, this enduring classic, and I wonder what it is about Scrooge that takes us in. I think most obviously is the transformation in his life From this selfish man to a generous man, but I wonder if there's also a darker draw That I sense even in my own life That there's a bit of Scrooge in my heart Well, actually it's a lot easier to go through life taking things for myself being self-contained not to be bothered with anything, and to accumulate as much as I can for myself for my own pleasure. You see, the problem with that approach is that I think that God, insofar as He's made us as humans with incredible faculties, that He's given each man and woman in this room incredible endowments, minds to think, the ability to create, to to generate wealth, all kinds of things, and what happens, I think, that He gives us those gifts, those endowments, so they might be channeled appropriately in a, worthy, in a worthy call. So again, to think, well, if God's given me all this, can I just keep it to myself, or are all causes just as worthy? Or alternatively, is there a principal calling on my life for which all that I've been given ought to be channeled for the sake of even eternity? Now, we've been studying at Advent, as you know, the last couple of weeks, looking at the baby in the manger, that the Bible gives that baby different names. That two weeks ago, you'll recall that the angel uh, tells the dad, tells Joseph, I want you to call this baby boy Yeshua. You know, in English, Joshua, his name coming then into, from the Greek into English as Jesus. And Matthew tells us, chapter one and verse twenty-one, that he's called Jesus because this word means, his name means, God saves, and he says that this Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? That Jesus didn't come to make my life a bit easier, uh, to promise me that I'd never get a bad diagnosis, that everything is smooth sailing, uh, that I would be prosperous. No, that actually Jesus came to save me from myself. That my real problem, far from you, or even people outside the church, or my family, or whoever's in my... Actually, my problem is me. My own crookedness, my own drive to be self-contained is Scrooge, and that Jesus has been put forth in history to rescue me. That the embarrassing things that I've done, the things that I don't want to tell any of you that I'm very sad about... Who handles that stuff? Is there anyone big enough? To say yeah that's the good news of the gospel that jesus was put forth in history to cleanse me from from my wrong to make me right with god that this boy jesus to save a people for himself from our sins to forgive us to show grace to us now last week a bit different that that same jesus uh, is announced on the night of his birth as astonishingly and this is one where your historical context really needs to be brought out, as I think, again, Caleb did a great job of, that that baby is Lord. I say, what in the world? I mean, to look at the baby and the baby and say, that's Lord. If ever there's an incendiary saying, I mean, you talk about, you know, just you want to throw fire into a conversation in the first century, is that you, you declare the, the peasant baby to be Lord. In all the... First century, it's the first Christian creed is Jesus is Lord. You say, why is that so incendiary? Because a good Roman knew that Caesar was Lord, that Caesar calls the shots in this empire, that Caesar's my boss, so to speak, and I owe him. From very early on, brothers and sisters, the Christians said, no, Caesar's not Lord. This Jesus is Lord. And what happens, amazingly, for people that recognize the Jesus who saves them from their sins as Lord is that He then ushers in real peace, beyond political peace, which we long for, and military peace, you know, we we long for that, but actually real and abiding peace, as the Bible would say, a peace that passes understanding comes through real trust in the Lord of history, that is Jesus. Maybe you're here today you're fretting a bit. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly reading articles about how America is very anxious, very depressed, very down, very worried. You say, well, is that the way I'm designed? Is that the way I'm to spend, you know, 70 or 80 years, whatever I'm granted, you know, worried and pressed and vexed and angry? I say, actually, maybe the problem isn't out there. Maybe the problem is that I've not come to grips with the claims of Jesus, the Lord of my life, that I can surrender to Him and have the peace of God flood into my heart THAT I CAN KNOW GOD, NOTHING WOULD TAKE THAT AWAY. NOW TODAY WE COME TO THE THIRD TITLE. THAT THIS JESUS, WHO IS LORD, IS ALSO THE CHRIST. NOW WHAT IS THE CHRIST? I MEAN, A LOT OF PEOPLE THINK THAT JESUS HAD A LAST NAME, uh, THAT HIS LAST NAME IS CHRIST. YOU KNOW, I'M SHAW AND HE IS CHRIST. YOU KNOW, JESUS CHRIST. ACTUALLY, THE CHRIST IS A a TECHNICAL THEOLOGICAL TERM IN in MUCH of, OF ISRAELITE HISTORY. Uh, And it becomes so much identified with Jesus that we call him Jesus Christ. And so uh, this passage references Jesus as Christ many times. What is this about? It's the same word actually as the Messiah. Maybe you've heard that, say Jesus Messiah. Messiah, again, same kind of thing like with Jesus. Messiah is the Hebrew and it comes into Greek as Christ. So that's a Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Messiah, Messiah Jesus, Jesus Christ, all one thing. And what it means is this. Jesus is Israel's anointed king. He's the king. Why is that important? And best I can do here in a few short minutes. The Old Testament, which is the vast majority of our Bibles, is a long, sweeping history of all kinds of genres given to God's people. And what you'll find is interspersed in the Old Testament are a lot of promises of a king to come. God says this, you're my chosen people, trust in me, I'll guide you home, I'm gathering for a a people for myself, and then interspersed in this history and in all the literature, he routinely makes promises. He says, one day I'm going to send a king, and the king's going to consolidate my people, he's not going to be like other earthly kings, and he's the one who's going to reconcile the the world. This is called a messianic promise, a, a messianic expectation. And if you count them, there aren't like, two or three. There there are actually hundreds of promises like this, that God one day would send forth an anointed king, the Christ, into history, and it will be unmistakable. Now, look at the text again, and we'll, we'll see just how this works out. Now, Herod, who's part Edomian, actually, he's part Jewish, part Edomian, but he's got on his, you know, what's it, you know, quick calls, you know, in his contacts, he's got the chief priests and the scribes, verse 4, so he hears that the baby who's been born is, some are calling him the Christ. And he assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he acquired of them where, look at this, the Christ was to be born. In other words, what he says is, fellas, I know it's widely understood that we're anticipating God sending a king. There's been some rumbling that a baby's been born in Bethlehem, a you know, that this baby's going to be the Christ. Can you tell me, are there any passages in your Bible that talk about where the Christ is to be born? To which they quote Micah, the Again, Hebrew prophet lived hundreds of years before Jesus. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, there's the promise, who will shepherd my people Israel. So this was widely attested as the point in the, you know, say, where's the Christ gonna be born? He's gonna be born in Bethlehem. What's he gonna do? He's gonna rule my people. So a long history of God promising an expected king to consolidate his people. Now, if there is a backbone, again, I said there's many, but if you have to choose one place in Scripture that is the backbone of the messianic promise, you go to 2 Samuel 7 in what's called the Davidic Covenant. It's in your notes. I'll read it for you. God speaking to David. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Very interesting. King David on the throne, the kind of golden age of Israelite history. God promises David, I'm going to raise up someone from your line, who's going to actually rule my people, actually he's going to gather the household of God's people, Is going to rule forever, I'm going to be like a father to him, and he will be my son. And the passage is really uh, littered with uh, echoes of Jesus being this figure. So why is Matthew at such pains, Matthew the biographer of Jesus that we're reading this morning, the first, you know, 17 verses are at great pains to show that Jesus was in David's line, that they had, the, you know, David was, in fact, Jesus' ancestor in order to fulfill this prophecy. So, it's a royal dynastic genealogy to show that this Jesus is Israel's anointed king. Now, if I can go one step further on this God orchestrating all history more than the other titles, that Jesus is the Christ pulling everything together. You say, if God didn't make all these promises and then fulfill them in Jesus, perhaps you're reading Matthew 2 today and you're, you're thinking about this and you say, there are parts of this story with Jesus and Herod that have very strong echoes to another part of the Bible. In fact, one that we've studied not that long ago in our church. Do you remember Exodus, how Exodus starts? God raises up a Deliverer. The Deliverer is called Moses. There's an angry tyrant on the world stage. His name is Pharaoh. That Pharaoh, out of jealousy, sets out to murder all the young babies in order to eliminate God's Deliverer. And Moses is sent down into Egypt. Now look at our story today, that God has raised up a Deliverer, right? He's put a Deliverer into the story, Jesus. There's an angry tyrant. The angry tyrant sends out to kill all the baby boys, and God sends the deliverer down to Egypt. Now, you think about everything that I've said so far. Say, this is the God of history. God giving us hundreds of promises. Not here today. Say, so, well, where can I find God's promises? You know, is it just some you know low life pastor telling me? Say, no. Actually, God said, I've made hundreds of promises about what I'm going to do in history. I've given you, especially you in North, America, I've given them into your very hand, and I've worked it all out just as I said I would across hundreds and hundreds of years. Perhaps you know you're here today. You think Christmas is just a bunch of fluff, and You know, there's no real backbone to it, and you have to suspend all kind of rationality to be one of those Christian people. What do you think about this? What do you think about God making hundreds of promises about sending a person into history? Again, not just about where he would be born or what he'd do, but even how he would die. Sending those promises, putting them in our hands in the form of his word, and then fulfilling them in the person of Jesus. Does that not give you a little bit of pause to say, wow, I wonder if there really is a God of history who's working even in the circumstances of life? Friends, we're a family of four. I have a plan in the morning, I do. I've got a plan for our family, yesterday, Saturday. Boys, here's the plan. It doesn't take very long for the plan to turn to mush. And if I think about it, say, well, that's four, four movers, I actually have a really tough time orchestrating my own plan. That I woke up Wednesday morning, I don't know what happened Tuesday night, drove back from the elder meeting, I, prob- I, I promise it wasn't that, uh, you know, there weren't that many altercations, but that to say, I woke up uh, for Wednesday morning to a flat tire, not like, you know, it didn't take anywhere, I mean, it was properly, properly flat. And for 48 hours, my plans turned to mush. It all went away." Now you think, here's the, the God of the Bible, not just working in one life or in four, but in all history to work His plan, to put His Son into our story, to rescue sinners like us, exactly as He said He would. I'm going to send the Christ. And again, maybe you're here today and you're, you're very worried does God know about me? Does he care? What about the pain I'm experiencing? Is he going to work it for good? I hope you see that, yeah, he, he, for those who trust him, he works all things to good. He's orchestrated all history, and the fact that this baby is the Christ, to me, has us I think we come back to what I would call a a big God theology, a big God theology that he's much bigger than we can imagine. He works in the tiny things. He does exactly what he says he's going to do and that he is trustworthy. So point number one in Matthew chapter two, the coming of the Christ shows God's control of history, not just the big things, but the little things too. Now, second key point from our passage today is that this claim, what we just talked about, provokes different types of responses, that people hear this and react all kinds of different ways. And I think a very common response actually comes from those aforementioned chief priests and scribes. Verse 4, so Herod calls the theologians together, you know, says, where's the passage about where the king is to be born? And they immediately give him the right answer, Micah 5.2. And that seems to be, as we read the rest of the gospel, all the further they go. Um, This would be your classic example of the group of folks who actually don't hate Jesus, per se. Um, They don't, they're not particularly bad people. They're not out to get anybody. They know their Bible really well. Do you ever? Think, I, it's hard enough memorizing Scripture now. You know, I got all these note cards that I have and, and printed text and actually all my Bibles in one book. Could you imagine every Sunday if I needed to make a cross-reference and I had to get out my scrolls here? You'd all be waiting. Service would be a very long time. Like, let me find the Micah scroll, and I'd roll out the Micah The point is they knew, their Bi- they knew what the, the Bible said really well, and they missed the point, which is to come to Jesus in simple faith, to see their own spiritual bankruptcy, to see that their own striving actually doesn't matter when you've got everything you do on your record. I thought of a little children's Christmas poem during the benediction last hour, and I said, Well, I better not say this at the benediction, but I'll say it now, see what you think. It just occurred to me, but it goes like this I'll try to do it with the right inflection to get it to rhyme. Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to see the queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what did you see there? A wee mouse under her chair. Now, the little British kids hear that poem for a reason. That is that the mouse, excuse me, the cat, has the queen's attention. He gets to go see the queen. But instead of paying any attention to the queen, he's preoccupied on what he's interested in which is the little mouse. And I think that these scribes are a bit like that. You say, here they have, they got all the right answers, the leading theologians of their day, great church attendance, and they miss the main point, which is to come to Jesus in simple faith. And again, maybe some here today, it's Christmas time, I go to church at Christmas, it's what I do, I like the hymns, and business as normal back to looking at the mice underneath the queen's chair instead of saying no you know what i do need jesus in a personal way and i want to surrender my life to him and serve the king the other response which is wrong as well but but dangerous but around today and that is that jesus can stir certain people to real anger and this is Herod, right? So Herod sees Jesus as a threat to his self-determination, to his power, that he's furious, right? Look at verse 16. He goes from being kind of you know, paranoid uh, you know, to, to spilling over into, into murderous behavior. And Matthew stresses for us, if you look at verses 1, verses 2, or, you know, he's stressing this language of kingship. Who's the real king? Is Herod the king? So Israel has this king. He's much more like normal kings, uh, being very, very selfish and bloody. Or is Jesus the king? And again, I think it's here in the text that I want to take just a moment, a little bit of a sidebar for those of you who, you know, you think of this and you're saying, well, is it really possible that Herod could murder all the baby boys in Bethlehem? If we just, again, here I'm just a little sidebar for those whose minds work this way. There's a lot of extra biblical writing on this Herod, Herod the Great. He ruled a long time. This Herod was a butcher. If you read Josephus, he murdered his whole family, He murdered his children. Any competitor to the throne? Actually, so people say, well, why isn't there any record of this elsewhere? To say Bethlehem's probably a town or a village of about 1,000 people, so you think there could be 20 or 30 boys that fit the category of under the age of 2. And actually, well-documented, actually the reason why this particular incident, this bloodbath, is not recorded elsewhere is probably because it was too small given Herod's behavior. This Herod was also a great builder, and if you study the buildings that he made, many of them still survive, that what's, what's immediately obvious to the people who know this stuff, which I don't, I, but, but I've read it, is that he was very paranoid, that you build big palaces with many layers of walls because you're afraid, that you have all kinds of, uh, you know, taste testers because you're afraid of being poor. Here's my point is you read something like this, that Herod, you know, there's Herod the Great, risky thing to do, to put Herod into the story. He's documented outside the Bible, there's, and, and that picture of Herod fits very well with the Herod of the Bible. So what's going on here, why does he get so mad? He gets so mad because Jesus, if Jesus is king, that means that Herod would have to reorient his life to serve this king, that he could no longer be self-serving. And this is how the Bible fulfills this kind of saying, which. There are many like this. Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now, if you're not used to that kind of statement, um, it sounds like a bit of a riddle, doesn't it? That Jesus says, I came to bring judgment, so that the people who can't see would be given sight, and the people who can see will, in fact, be made blind. What do you think that means? I think it means that, again, it comes back to this idea of what pleases God. We please God by our faith. And every Christian, every member, the 613 members of our church, there are 613 Old Testament laws and 613 members of our church. Very interesting. I thought about assigning each of you a law, but probably not uh, to see if we can obey it one year, you know. Say, probably not the best use of time. Uh, What was I saying? For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In other words, all of our members of our church would say something like this. I was blind. I was doing my own thing. And God opened my eyes to see my need, to see that I needed to receive Jesus as my Savior. I was blind, and now I see. I can't boast in myself. I've got nothing on my own to bring to the king. And we were given sight. But others, we say, are more like Herod. They think they see. They've got money. They've got influence. They don't need God, and Jesus is right there. And actually, no thanks that they're made blind. And all this to say Jesus is a different kind of a king. Why does he provoke anger in our day? Why does everybody, you know, everybody can talk about God? No problem. But when you say the J word, there's a certain All of us before we were regenerated who get mad Jesus is the problem and the reason I think echoes Herod here to say the real issue is that if Jesus is king it means that I'm not king and that he owes my service and all that I am belong to him and not to me and this is a very scary prospect so unregenerate people see King Jesus differently where am I in the story I'm a candidate for the scribe, aren't I? Christian parents, good church attendance. I know the answers. Counts for nothing. But to come to Jesus by faith. Or does Jesus stir up real anger in me to say, that's the last guy we need. Actually, what I want to do is what I want to do, and so forth. All right, third point, And we'll bring it home here. So the model of the right response then, so God sends the Christ, He orchestrates all history. This truth Causes different responses, but amazingly, the right response here is shown uh, by the magi. These are the wise men now, more than other parts of the bible this this part of the history is um, has been embellished over the centuries. so someone said, well how many wise we're so used to seeing three wise men aren 't we um, so, there are not necessarily three wise men, there could have been, there, there are three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, so we were, we're told at least three gifts, we don't know how many wise there could have been two, there could have been a lot more, they could have had a whole entourage. They're, they're probably not kings, so um, this comes probably from Psalm 72 or Isaiah 60 where the kings of the east are going to come and bow down uh, to the Messiah, but uh, they're not necessarily kings. They're, they're probably members of the Persian court, and they don't have names, so sometimes you'll see that they have names. So the, the We Three Kings of Orientar is not, it's a great song to sing. It's not accurate. Fair enough? Um, what we know for sure is this. They're men of stature from the east, That their men of great learning say all this about stars is well documented, again, extra-biblically. So in the East, there's a lot of fascination with astronomy and astrology. You had to be a thinking person to do this. That they come bearing these very expensive gifts, and I think the giveaway here is that they get an audience with Herod. So you imagine you walk into town and you say, I want to see the king, and they say, oh yeah, of course, king's office is right through." You say, no, they're probably men who had their act together, humanly speaking. And God gives them the message that his king, the real king, is going to be born. And these men, these lofty men from the Persian court or the Babylonian court, come to worship, to find Jesus, Therefore, thereby fulfilling this great truth in the Bible that Jesus is a light to the nations. Now, three quick lessons from the Magi, and then we will go to communion. First, the Magi come to Jesus by the simple faith I've been talking about. They undertake a costly journey. That are we, have we become in America very lazy people who aren't that interested in pursuing truth, let alone, you know, oh, you know, what's it going to take for me to investigate, to see what the Bible says, to actually know what Christians believe, to say, here are the Magi come many hundreds of miles, maybe thousands of miles, on a quest for truth, to drive at truth. And they respond to God by coming to Jesus and worshiping the baby. Now, Ryle, Bishop Ryle, who's a very learned 19th century bishop of Liverpool, he says, we have no greater example of faith in the New Testament than the Magi. He says, Jesus, he performed no miracles yet, he had no followers, he gave no sermons, he didn't rise from the dead, he was a peasant baby, and yet the Magi come by faith that we have the word of God, we have the resurrection, we have the miracles, we have 2,000 years of the church testifying to these things, we have transformed lives, people testifying, say how much more ought we to believe than these dear men from the east who one day will see in glory. The magi come to Jesus by faith and they worship him. Secondly, the magi bring expensive luxury goods, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Who asked for myrrh this year? Anyone? I see him. So I THINK IT'S USED FOR EMBALMING, SO THAT'S GOOD. Uh, what, WHAT CAN WE SAY ABOUT GOLD AND FRANKINCENSE AND MYRH? YOU KNOW, NO EXPERT ON THIS, BUT THEY'RE VERY EXPENSIVE. THAT'S THE POINT. Uh, THEY COME FROM THEIR PART OF THE WORLD, FROM ARABIAN, FROM SOMALIA. The, THEY SAY, WELL, what, uh, WHAT CAN WE GIVE THE MOST SPECIAL THING FOR THE KING? THAT'S THE RIGHT RESPONSE TO THE KING, TO SERVE THE KING WITH OUR ENDOWMENTS. And if you think about, we use the phrase here as many places do, but time, talent, and treasure. See, I think the Magi fit that mold nicely. They give a lot of time to seeking the truth of Jesus, to coming to worship Him. They march across the entire ancient Near East. They give their time. They give their talent insofar as they're astronomers and astrologists that they knew the cycle of the stars, that they used who they were to... Leverage themselves for the sake of Jesus. And they certainly gave their treasure in the gold and frankincense and myrrh. How much more again to say, to think back, to say here are the endowments we've been given, time, talent, and treasure. Where's the right place for them to land? Certainly on King Jesus. And I bet some of you here today, you say, wow, gold and frankincense and myrrh, our minds immediately go to money. They say, I don't have a lot. I'd like to draw your attention to a song that I dismissed for 30 years, okay? It's a popular song. My sister and I, I still remember, we would always laugh when we heard the pa-rum-pa-bum-bums of the Little Drummer Boy. Say, this song is nonsense, and we made fun of it. And then about six years ago, I was at a serious meeting, and one of the businessmen brought up the Little Drummer Boy in a serious way. I was quite shocked. And I went back, and I listened to the words of that song and was actually quite moved, if you remember now. Um, The little drummer boy says, I don't really have valuable gifts for the king. The others seem to have worthy gifts for the king, the equivalent of gold and frankincense and myrrh. All I have is my drum. And the resolution of the song is the boy saying, if he's the king and I have a drum, I WILL PLAY MY DRUM TO THE GLORY OF THE KING, AND I WILL PLAY MY DRUM AS BEST AS I AM ABLE FOR THE KING. BROTHERS AND SISTERS, THESE MAGI GAVE OF THEIR TIME AND TALENT OF TREASURE, SO MUST ALL OF US WHO OUR EYES HAVE BEEN opened TO THE TRUTH OF THE GOSPEL THAT JESUS IS OUR KING, THEN THE RIGHTFUL OBJECT OF OUR TIME AND TALENT AND TREASURE IS HIS AND HIS ALONE, THAT HE ALONE IS WORTHY. TO GO BACK TO SCROOGE AND THAT TEMPTATION, accumulate for myself for my own security or to offer to jesus all that i am to serve him and his people lastly thirdly and i hope on this point that i i don't need to preach a whole sermon on this in 2024 but here we go the magi obey god rather than earthly authorities so herod says guys he tries to trick the wise men he says you know, guys, why don't you come back and tell me where this child's to be because I want to come worship. Actually, what Herod wanted to do is what, kill him. And verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the wise men returned to their own country by another way. In other words, what happens here is that the message from on high, of course, is from God, and the wise men then have a choice. Herod's a pretty powerful, bloodthirsty guy. He's a little bit scary, he's fanatical. We don't know what he'll do, and he asked us to do this. God says, don't do that. That dishonors me. And the wise men obey God and not men. Now, that rolls right off my tongue, but there's a reason in Galatians 1, Paul says, you can't be a man-pleaser and a God-pleaser. And I'll tell you what, there's an awful lot in Austin that likes to be a man-pleaser. And it's time, again, I think, always for the Christian to be absolutely resolved to say, God is king. I obey God and not men, no matter the cost. So, friends, Matthew chapter 2, that Jesus, this baby, is the Christ, it shows us, to me, beyond all doubt, that God is the God of history. He's made promises. He did exactly what he said he would do. Hundreds of promises, hundreds of years in advance, and he did exactly what he said he would do, plainly, for all of us to read. Secondly, that this news of Jesus, this good news that God put forth Jesus to rescue sinners actually creates different responses, indifference or anger. But most importantly for us, humble faith and service to the king. That you've all been given considerable endowments by virtue of being humans. What are you going to do with them? Is it all for Jesus? I'll pray and invite the men to stand or come up, I guess, the men come up to serve communion. Loving and gracious Father, Father, Praise you and thank you for these men from the East. To think one day all those who are in Christ would be in glory and say, oh, who are you? To say, well, I'm so-and-so. You read about me in December of 2023 that God opened my eyes to be one of those astrologers from Persia to come and God opened my heart to see in Jesus what I couldn't have seen on my own, that he's the king. Lord, what a day that will be. So, Father, help us to see in our time that we, it's not our burden to bear what others, how others respond to you, but some, no doubt, will be indifferent. No thanks. Know their Bible. Come to church. Whatever it be. Oh, I'm one of those. Sure, I come to Christmas uh, church on Christmas. Whatever it would be. But rather to say, no, may we come in, in faith. Lord, we need you. We're thankful for you. And all that you've done for us in this church. In Christ's name, amen.